You're listening to the Talk Editions Podcast. This is episode 22, featuring the flutist and fearless leader of Talk Ensemble, Laura Cox, and their new solo album, Field Anatomies, which drops today, February 22nd, 2022. That's right, like an ancient seed from a date palm tree, unearthed and coaxed into germination. This podcast was awoken from its period of dormancy. We will continue releasing weekly episodes through most of the spring, so you might want to make sure you've subscribed or followed Talk Edition's podcast so you don't miss an episode. For this episode, Laura and I, Charlotte Mundy, interviewed all five of the composers featured on the album about their music, about space, time, and embodiment. Check the show notes for links to all of the composers' websites, since we won't be reading off bios or anything like that in this episode. And of course, there will also be a link to buy or just stream Laura's incredible album. You can also just go to bandcamp.com and search for Field Anatomies, and you will find it that way. It really is a stunning album. You've just, you've got to hear it. You've got to hear it. And these conversations were super fun. I'm really excited to share them with you. Let's just dive in. You got to go first. Oh, I do. Dang it. My name is David Bird, and this is Atolls. Just to describe it on the the outside looking in, uh, this is a piece for one solo piccolo performer and then 29 spatialized piccolo performers. And these performers are sitting around the audience and then, you know, also around the solo performer who sits in the center of everyone. Now, we've done the piece a lot with the flutes pre-recorded, so kind of treating it like a a solo piece with multi-channel electronics. The moment people see the line 29 spatialized piccolos, there's a lot of fear that comes into this. And I kind of like the playfulness of that. Like it's a kind of shock title. But at the same time, there's a lot of moments in this piece that are like stunningly beautiful and things that are also like incredibly harsh and terrifying. And I love the extreme of that. Balancing a single performer against, you know, a big mass of sound and 29 performers. There's a lot of room for flexibility and questions about scale and um, perceptibility, which become really interesting in the piece. This, there is a solo part, which is really its own part. Um, it's very virtuosic. In terms of the notation, it looks kind of like a traditional solo part with uh, musical material that's really inspired from working with Laura and a lot of the techniques that we developed together. So there's a lot of interplay and kind of hocketed material between vocal sounds and then percussive sounds or sustained sounds on the flute. But it's like the combination of all these things that tries to compete with the massive sound that comes from these other piccolos are just assigned a single pitch with the hopes that maybe a student group could do this at some time. I want to jump in on that really quick. Oh. They're given a specific pitch, but it's not necessarily an easy pitch to create. So yes, it would be 
an amazing thing to have a, a student group or something like that play, but the pitches are really specific down to a hundredth of a semitone. So. Well, I'm trying to sell it here and um, seems like you're trying to walk it back a little bit. Maybe they do the, um, they just shift their embouchure around. They think they're playing a C, but it's actually a C a hundredth of a cent sharp and then they get it. What about that? Here for this, yeah, 100%. So. Okay, but no, you're totally right. All those auxiliary flutes have really specific tuned notes that they play and they are intended to make up the spectral analysis of a crash cymbal mixed with a scream sound. Laura, what does it feel like to be in the middle of it, performing it? It's so, so good. In its kind of spatial configuration, the audience is seated in concentric circles, essentially, with the piccolo in the middle. And then the, the playback or the piccolo players are around the audience. It just feels like this huge act of making some sort of house or some sort of like really weird world. And it feels, I mean, being in the middle of that is intensely powerful. There's a moment about halfway through the piece where the solo line stops playing for about a minute and a half. And then you're just given the opportunity to listen, but you're listening from the middle of the room. Everyone's looking at everyone else in the space because it's this concentric circle situation, but you're also in everybody's field of vision and you're just there listening alone. And it's amazing. It's very scary to perform too, because you're listening to these tiny cues that's happening on like Piccolo 23 to be like, oh, that kind of like G23 cents flat just came in and now I have to move to this, which can be really hard live. Do you think the environment of New York in any way shaped the piece? I think, David, you also finished the piece in California. Oh, I did? You're trying to make me say something about oceans. I don't know if I if that really affects me so much. I mean, I know that this is a very loud, very metallic piece, and if I was writing most of it in New York, then that would make sense to me. And maybe also the sense of when you're in a city, you can't see everything at the same time. You only see like some buildings, but they block out all the other buildings. And so there's a fun sense of perspective and scale that's maybe similar in this piece where there's a, a shift between something very small and local and something that's very big and massive. And when you're in a city, you're constantly personally dealing with that kind of scale and that kind of distance, being an individual in like a big space. We recorded this in Nice and that feels very central to the piece. And it's like, oh yeah, this like specific studio, the taste of the coffee in that studio, the quality of the air. And then after we recorded it in Nice, we were supposed to play it for this opening of this building in Paris that ended up getting canceled. We got stuck there. So then we were just kind of wandering around, but we had just recorded this piece. So it was this like huge anticlimactic moment and I got really sick. And like, I always think about that with this piece, but then I actually wrote most of my dissertation about this piece also. Charlotte, when we were at Stanford and I was like, oh crap, we have a 20 minute break. I gotta write something. And so I think that this piece has really gone a lot of different physical places with me, a lot of different geographical places with me. So like maybe like if I were a kid having like a blanket or something. This recording is the oldest one on the album and it's actually from like December of 2014 or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. One thing I really admire about your composition process is that I've definitely seen you sitting at your desk being like, <laughs> making the sounds with your mouth and you're like mm -hmm. having some sort of attack like a translational experience feeling through what it feels like to make the sounds as you make them what 
would you say your embodied compositional process looks or feels like? For me, it's trying to empathize with the experience of being a performer and playing it, and also realizing the potential for connections between disparate material that you wouldn't necessarily see if you were just writing things out on a page. I experience this a lot in writing for woodwind instruments or with strings where there's some kind of binary element to it of breathing out, breathing in, and there's often some extra little tricks you can do with some technique if you're doing one of those but not the other one and so kind of following the logic of performance and following the logic of breath seeing how you can fill empty space with things that aren't limited to just one of those states i guess so it's a really creative space even though it's a goofy one where you're trying to like in your mind play an instrument that you can't play and and you know you're even playing it wrong when you're pretending to play it you also find new possibilities with that as well kind of directs the composing in a in a big way so uh but what about the what about the screams oh well the scream solo i i have a memory of meeting with you at the cmc at columbia university we were trying out techniques for this and you were we were kind of goofing like we entered a state of like hysteria goofing on the techniques that we were playing with and i remembered you'd like screaming into the flute, exploring the connection between like this really goofy, almost like shrill scream sound in connection with like the high pitch register of the flute as the played note and kind of doing both of those at the same time and kind of weaving the pitch around um, from the played flute and the screaming. I want to say that you invented that, but I'm sure there was probably some really angry flautist one time that did it. But so you you didn't invent it? I did not invent that. Not at all. You invented it. Um, I don't know who invented it, but I remember the very first time I ever heard someone do anything like that in my life was I was in high school and my high school flute teacher is friends with Nicole Mitchell and I I think Mm. that we went to a concert of Nicole's hearing that blew my mind Mm. yeah and 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 she does it in this like amazing way where she has so much vocal control that I don't have at all one of the things that I, I thought was really cool about it too is like my vocal cords are a little gunky and you like found pitches that work on my vocal cords which are like really high ones yeah, I kind of feel like the the range of it is definitely geared towards your voice and hearing the sound for the first time. I knew at this point that I wanted to write a piece that was for solo piccolo and 29 spatialized piccolos, but I didn't know what kind of poetic thing would come out of that. And for me, it was the combination of like voice and something metallic and finding some kind of hybrid of that, which resonated with the idea of an individual versus a big metallic spatialized collective of flutes that were surrounding the performer. That technique, which occurs really prominently in the middle of the piece in a solo section, felt like really where everything kind of collapsed and made sense of itself to explore this connection just in a single technique um, of what everything in the piece was trying to explore. Alchemy. Alchemy. I'm curious what both of you think about the issue of consent when it comes to writing and performing stuff that is potentially harmful. In this case, it sounds like it was just effortless. But do you have any insight as to why this particular taxing technique feels okay to you and what might have made it not okay? I think it it has a lot of different avenues that get to the consent that is very robust in this scenario. First and foremost, like this piece was a, a big collaboration and we, we really like worked on the sounds prior to and throughout the compositional process and we spent time in those sounds together. And so any sort of disclaimers about the actions 
and the physicality of those actions were like talked about it while we were even in kind of the workshop stages, I think. I think the other thing is like David and I have a very close collaborative relationship and I feel completely comfortable at any time being like, I'm not doing this. The question of performance consent and stuff like that, I think gets tricky when you're in a lot of other contexts. Like if you're maybe being hired by a group in which you're a substitute or something like that, and you're like, oh crap, I just have to do this. Or if you're in, you know, one of these kind of like weird, funky composer performer power dynamic hierarchies which still persists in weird ways then yeah maybe you don't have as much autonomy you don't have as much space to be like no but I always know that I can just say like listen this isn't working this is why and that David is really willing to hear that kind of feedback and then I think the other aspect of it is there are a lot of things where I'm like "Mm, this doesn't physically feel good and I just think like it's so worth it (laughs) it feels so worth it it's kind of like I don't know. I feel like generally, physically, I separate discomfort from pain. And I generally feel pretty okay experiencing either one of those things, as long as I know that it's not like leading to a situation that will be irreparable or hard to come back from. It was painful when we recorded it because we had to do it many times. But generally to perform it, it's just uncomfortable. And then the repercussions are just that I sound really weird for a few days afterwards, which is just uncomfortable. And I'm fine with that level of discomfort. I think maybe it exacerbates some vocal issues that I already have, but I do that all the time in my own playing and I feel really fine with, fine with it. The podcast that we did with Taishan was like two days after we, or maybe three days after we got back from Oberlin and when, when we had played Atolls. And I remember that podcast recording was like, hey, Taishan. Laura's talking about episode eight of the Talk Editions podcast. Awesome conversation. This is what the opening sounds like. I'm Laura Cox, the flutist of TAC, and today we're talking with Taishan Sori. Hi, Taishan. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Definitely some audible vocal healing happening there. When we were working on it, the things that I should have been asking in terms of consent, they were not the right things. When we were doing these crazy techniques, like with the screaming and stuff, these are things that you you would do just normally or for fun, or we would do them together. And when I was writing them, I was like, do you think you can do this? Like, is this okay? But what I didn't really anticipate was when we were recording all the 29 parts, how taxing that would be. It was the sustained, like repetitive actions of recording the same note over and over again that I could tell that's, I mean, you always tell me like, no, if something is not feeling good or if we want to take a break on something, but I did not anticipate that being so painful. And I, I could have thought more about how we paced out that recording session. And I'd also say with this piece, someone doesn't have to go so hard. Like you don't have to go so hard so that you don't talk the next day, but you go, you go like balls to the wall, 110% every single time. Yeah. I think I've heard you say that before. You can, you can just chill on this one, you know? <laughs> Just for a little context with those repeated parts, as David mentioned, each different piccolo part is assigned to a specific pitch, and these pitches are really specific. And so when we were going through and we were recording each one, we would get to the pitch to a hundredth of a semitone. So I'd find the pitch, which through some combination of adjustment of the instrument and adjustment of my embouchure, I'd find it against the tuner, and then I would just stop playing. I would freeze, and I would stop playing. I wouldn't be like, okay, we're good to go. The cue to start rolling was I was silent because I couldn't move or we'd lose the pitch. And it is kind of amazing how taxing that was. I think the reason I got sick was because of the scream solo, because it kind of just shredded my mucous membranes, but the 29 piccolo parts themselves were really exhausting to record. Yeah, psychologically exhausting too. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you for talking about that, because I think it's an interesting issue and 
different people are in really different places about the amount of risk they're willing to take on or the amount of discomfort. And I think it's just good to have conversations about it with different people. And in different circumstances, because I wouldn't take on this degree of risk or discomfort in any circumstance. You know, I wouldn't do it, you know, unless it was a piece that was developed really collaboratively with someone I really trusted in a context where I really, really wanted to just throw down. If someone just wrote something like this for me and then put it in front of me, I, I, I frankly would be pissed. Yeah. And I don't think that this characterizes how I typically write either. It was totally informed by our collaboration. Having spent eight years with the piece now, do you feel like your relationship with it has changed much? Oh my gosh. In the piece, there's a lot of feathered beaming to kind of weave between two different sounds. So you'll have like a and a and a kind of one of those sounds happens on the flute in the piece. So it sounds a little weird in my mouth here, but I remember just getting the piece and doing a shit ton of math. Like, how am I going to fit like 16 of these impulses within a dotted chord note? And it's been really nice to live with the piece for so long because those practicalities are kind of just like embedded in the body now. Yeah. And I'd say like when I started writing this, I felt like I was throwing a lot of stuff at this piece trying to throw everything that I learned from Laura into this, but also just trying to try things that I've never done before in my own music. So it felt kind of like I was rolling a big ball up the hill or something. But it's funny, looking back at the piece now, it's amazing how this thing that felt so heavy and so crude in a way has turned into something that's like very elegant and graceful and actually just beautiful. I don't see any of those heavy aspects that I used to see when I was writing the piece. Now it really feels like an old, beautiful car where you know it's very powerful and there's a lot of combustion like underneath it. But on the outside, it's just like so finely sculpted and graceful. And you don't even think that there's all that stuff happening underneath it. It's been packaged and massaged over time in such a beautiful, elegant way. Hi, I'm Bethany Young, and I composed Oxygen and Reality. For Laura Cox, specifically. The piece is for piccolo, electronics, balloons, has some washers inside the balloons. I was thinking about what it meant to be for something to be uninhabitable to some extent and how air is such a fundamental element to our existence. And I was thinking about also how the piccolo is such a small little instrument. It's just like an an extension of the vocal cords. And so it was a great instrument to kind of show the relationship between Laura and her air. And so the balloon that's attached to the end of the piccolo is a visual aid to some extent. It's also uh, has its own sonic weight, but you see in such an immediate sense, the piccolo being the vessel of the air, which is visualized through the balloon. And yeah, I, I guess I was thinking about air and how essential that is and how air becomes this like very scarce thing on earth, but also in outer space. <laughs> I was just kind of playing around with this, this really crappy wooden recorder that Pablo bought in Mexico. And it's about the same size as a piccolo. And 
Laura and I played around with the balloons and then I attached it to the recorder and I was able to kind of get a sense for how it would feel through the piccolo as well. When you were writing this piece, were you thinking of sounds first or were you thinking of feelings first? Because it almost seems like you were thinking about feelings primarily, like the feeling in Laura's body, in the audience's body, the mechanics of air. It almost seems like communicating and playing with those things is more important than communicating sounds, even though the sounds are also super cool. A feeling-based palette. I'm excited about this. I've never thought of it that way, but I think you're right. Like I said, I had the, the little recorder and I was trying things out then and there and just getting a sense for that. I wasn't doing it feeling based in the sense of beyond just the moment. So I, I like couldn't have performed piece on my little crappy thing recorder because I I didn't have that those kind of trained lungs (laughs) so I suspected that the piece would be extremely tedious but I didn't know for sure how that would feel for someone who's like used to using their breath all the time and honing in on their air and that's like a very big that's like a major part of their practice and identity and it's not for me that feeling base couldn't really translate right but I could think about the feeling base of the moment. I hesitate to say, though, that the sounds were secondary. I would say that they're like embedded in one another. What does it feel like to perform this piece, Laura? Well, I was, I was just curious. I was going to ask Bethany what it feels like in the moment. I, I don't know. I feel like that would be really fun to compare contrast. Are you OK with answering that first, Bethany? Like, what is the what are the range of feelings that you had or what did it feel like for you when you were putting the piece together? Well, I think physically just, uh, well, and emotionally, those aren't, those are somewhat inextricable for me, but it it feels really extreme (laughs) taking these two inhale and exhales are like opposites and taking those two and pushing them to their extremes, which I do in that piece. For me, it felt like very dramatic, Um, but in this really cold way, it's like a very cold drama. And I think because we think of air as like maybe hyperventilating or we gasp for air, it's very dramatic, but the presentation is so unyielding throughout the whole piece. That's, that's the whole piece. It starts to ha- have its own signifiers in the end, you know? So for me, that, that was my experience, but I never played it through. I also didn't perform it very well. <laughs> I was just getting the sense of what could happen. Definitely when you breathe in and out really fast, it feels cold on your throat. If you want to get a really nice warm breath, you can breathe in through your nose, which warms it up for your body. And if you're taking these inhales through your mouth, you're getting a much colder air. Bethany has in the piece really composed in when you have to breathe in with your nose because there's not an opportunity to breathe in with your mouth, but there's still action happening in other spaces that frees up a nose inhale. And then, of course, when you do have to breathe in through your mouth, it's also really explicitly notated. So it's kind of fascinating to like put together the two different practices of a warm inhale versus a cold inhale and what that means for the quality of inhale and how it affects your body. But I think actually, Bethany, our experiences of playing it are really similar. (laughs) Definitely very extreme. (laughs) I think I also really hear what you're saying about cold too, like not even in a temperature way, but in, yeah, the cold drama, there's something about it that's very contained or severe. Even in the moments where the physical action is 
so extreme that it's almost hyperbolic. Even there, it's like everything is restricted into this really specific space. It's either the piccolo as a closed tube where these little moments of air are being released through the keys and the the tube is quite literally closed with the player's pinky on the end of the instrument. So you have a pressure that you're only releasing these little bits of. And then that pressure shifts when there's the balloon activated on the end of the instrument. You have this system that is incredibly contained and incredibly severe in which all of this extreme stuff is happening. I wonder if it's extreme for the piccolo. Do you think the piccolo feels stressed out? I think the piccolo definitely feels stressed out by it. A hundred percent it's extreme for the instrument as well. I think it's actually, it's really fascinating because there's a lot of different materials involved in the piece. There's the latex of the balloon. There's the wood of my piccolo. Different piccolos can be made out of different materials. There's the metal of the hardware that's inside of some of the balloons. There's this kind of hair rubber band that we'd wrap onto the edge of the balloon to get it to stay onto the piccolo that we'd like thread through the D sharp key. And then of course there's like fleshy body material. And so you have all of these different things in the same place. All of them certainly like reach different breaking points. Like right now my piccolo has a is a really nasty leak. I don't necessarily attribute this to you, Bethany. This is just with a wear and tear that goes with it. But certainly like the back few millimeters of the instrument are like a little discolored from the moisture of the balloon. Totally down for that. We've had balloons pop. Certainly I've had physical recalibration effects. We've had hair ties snap. Every element in the piece, I think, undergoes a a large degree of duress. I love the moment at the end of the piece where Laura has to speak that bit of text and is just totally out of breath. Bethany, do you remember when you added that to the piece? Did you start with the text or did you kind of find the text later? It's been a little bit now, but I'm pretty sure I started with the text. Often why I work with text or visual elements is that it gives me a sense of (laughs) structure, quite literally. And so that's kind of how the text is worked out throughout the piece. Little bits of the text trickle through more and more each time. And then at the end, you, you get the whole thing. It's quite it's quite a simple structure, actually. And so that the text did help me kind of organize the whole piece while also giving me, a, you know, this, uh, how do I explain this? Like the intention behind the whole piece is like embedded into the text. I don't think I fully understood how out of breath she would sound when she got to that last text the the last chunk of the text and it was just like perfect I don't I think that was a serendipitous thing on my on my behalf yeah speaking of cold and extreme conditions most of this piece was written in Chicago is that correct (laughs) do you feel like being in that space influenced your uh writing in any way I think always the answer is yes no matter what piece, it doesn't factor in, in any way that I'm very conscious of, even at this minute. I can't exactly articulate what the relationship between that environment was with this particular piece. But maybe you're right, the, the coldness. But I, I also grew up in a cold place. It's actually colder. Hmm. What do you think, Laura? What kind of spaces do you associate with this piece? Maybe I associate a little bit of it with Chicago because Chicago is very homey to me and Bethany is also very homey to me. So there's this, I don't know, multivalent comfort of the piece. But I I think that this piece really, to me, is about place in in a way that Bethany kind of already referred to, which is the speculative place of some sort of like hypothetical environment, maybe outer space in which there's a huge issue with air 
and that has to be something that's reckoned with. There is something very spatial about the piece, though. The instrument is closed mic'd. It's cute instrument, just saying. And we're making the piccolo into this really vast, expansive thing, especially with electronics, which is all like my heaters and freezer in Chicago. So there's where Chicago filters in. Seriously, that's big. But it, it has this sense of like infinite space. That is my baby. It's hungry. Sorry, just give me a second. That's cool. Hi, Solaris. Hi, Solaris. Hi, Hi, Pablo. Pablo. <laughs> I also have a cat on my lap right now. Yeah, nursing Jiro. Oh my God, this is so sweet. Oh my God. Yeah, okay. To me, it almost feels like this piece, it takes place inside a body, the body of the listener and the body of the performer. And it's cool to think that it's at once in the body and intergalactic. It's like you're kind of like floating through space. So everything would be kind of like, like you couldn't really conceive of how large your environment is. And you have to have such a small scale focus on your own body, otherwise you will perish because of lack of oxygen. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. My name is Jesse Cox and I'm the composer for Spiritus. So Spiritus is a piece where I explore a bunch of different summation tone chords on the flute created by singing and playing, followed by passages of musical pitches where basically the pitches are supposed to be coming from those chords, which I see as spaces at that point. And I started writing this piece kind of as a thinking through of breeding, especially thinking about the physicality of breeding and its relationship to being able to create a sort of a space which is more abstract, like pitches or thinking as in humans or life as in plants or something like that. So I just wanted to go through that question with the flute. Cool. Did you say that the chords you think of as spaces? That's right. The chords are spaces... Yeah, that's just how I've been thinking about it lately. I think it's just a different approach to thinking pitch, where each pitch is a probability of a space. So if you have a sum and difference tone, firstly, it will always be slightly different because of acoustics of the room or some kind of micro tuning change. And then secondly, some of the pitches won't be perceived as individual sounds. They will be perceived as this cloud of sound. And then when Laura is playing the fast passage, it's kind of like she's moving within this cloud of sound. So in that sense, it's kind of like moving through a space. When you compose using those spaces, do you feel yourself moving through the spaces or changing shape as you write in the different spaces? Uh, Yes. Actually, spaces really do change the body shape. That's what I learned actually very strongly in The Sound of Listening, a piece I did for Issue Project Room. Uh, But this piece is an older piece and Laura actually changed my mind of what is possible because she was able to play those complex collections of sounds with some different tones that also happen in the room and then really listen and tune the passages after to that sound. And this blew my mind. I never thought it was possible, so I'm going to write a new work where we will explore this further and really travel the spaceways, so to say, and we will do this... uh, 
it will be like a flute solo within a piece for Sonora Orchestra, which will be premiered probably towards the end of this year. Sweet. That's very so exciting. Excited. So excited. I think it's really amazing in the piece too, like there are these things that come back, but they come back in different ways. You can really physically feel the different spaces that get created. I think that's one of my favorite things in music in general, <laughs> is like when through the act of making music or even just like thinking through what's going to happen when you do play it. Um, but especially, of course, when you play it, like you kind of construct alternate realities or different planetary conditions or things like that. It ends up being especially effective on flute because breath is so central to the sound of the instrument that literally you end up being in this situation, yeah, where you're like creating a space where you're like, okay, the difference tones are happening like this. So what does that mean about this space? But you can control them out yourself anyways. So you can kind of create the architecture of the space that way. But then you're also kind of creating the like composition of the atmosphere, like the chemical composition of the atmosphere through how you engage with the space that you've created with your breath. It's like such a cool multi-layered spatial experience, this piece. Laura, did you have to change or rethink in any way your relationship to breathing through this piece? Yes, I think the answer is yes. There were adaptations to the way that I normally breathe in a given performance that I think this piece maybe asked for or maybe I asked for in the context of the piece. I'm not sure what the chicken egg situation there is in terms of that relationship. And I think like you hear on the recording, the breath, Jesse is really beautifully notated these kind of like bar lines and commas and space between you know gestures or measures and you can hear on the recording the amount of breath that's happening there I didn't want that to be like hidden or edited out or kind of falsified there because it feels like such a way of physically tracking the space and I think normally in in flute life a lot of people who are using their breath to produce sound life it's all about like hiding that inhale that makes the sound but I think that for me at least in this scenario inhale is really important and so I think part of the reflection on the relationship that I have to breath with this piece is just kind of really being okay with taking the time that I felt like the breath warranted and taking the time to breathe within this space that has been created I think to create this space where it feels like you would have to breathe in in a certain way and then take a normal like flute preparatory anacrusis breath would feel like a weird slippage <laughs> out of the environment that you've made. Jesse, where were you when you wrote this piece, actually in geographic <laughs> and uh, maybe climatological space? Where were you, and do you think that that had any effect on what you wrote, how you wrote? Uh, I was in New York, actually, at that time, and I don't know if it did. It's been a while, so I kind of don't remember <laughs> very well. <laughs> do you, How do you feel like you're approach to composition has changed in the time since you wrote the piece it's interesting because i think something becomes clear after you keep writing music about what you were looking for maybe but i think probably that is retroactive you know i'm saying oh i was interested in spaces but maybe it was just what the material was saying i don't know it's hard to say you know why you choose certain steps in a direction and this piece now for me is definitely tied to the way Laura is playing it because that's how now I'm thinking about that's what influenced my way of thinking about the material and the way I'm talking about it right now so I cannot actually move it back into that time because I think it was a different piece 
and now that's why I want to write a, another work and just keep seeing what this means that there are spaces that uh, are being created. I also really like this notion of hearing the breath uh, that is necessary to make the music or the labor for the music. So, yeah, I don't know. I have nothing concrete to say about it. <laughs> Non-concrete is often the most exciting, I think. Yep. Jesse, I'm kind of wondering, like, you know, we were talking about the breath and we were talking about the physical labor to make the sound. Like when you were composing the piece, did you have any sort of embodied practice when you were composing it? It's interesting because for me, the phrasing in this piece is thought like breathing. So this is why it's this space and then movement. These were the two aspects of breath. So that's how breathing happens. But of course, when you compose something like this, every time you, I write a space or a chord, like with this, the resultant tones and stuff like that, I kind of calculate what could come out because I kind of want to know so that I can then write pitches that could be there. And then somebody as brilliant as Laura comes along and actually can tune it in a way where it is there, which is kind of interesting to think about the relation to composition in that instance. But so then it's very different temporality, right? That you are feeling or are experiencing because this piece has so much labor. Every second or every sound in the piece is in relation to another one. And all of them have overtones and resultant tones. So you have to know what is their relationship. So you try to investigate that and calculate. So in terms of breath, you kind of have to go into other directions of time. For me, every time I write a piece, it's kind of a breathing in the sense of thinking. Maybe I should say it like that. Just full stop there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to be spending the rest of my day thinking like really in my head about, am I thinking with my breath right now? We've been asking people about space in all of these interviews, but space always happens at a time, too. Space unfolds in time, and it's hard, actually, to talk about space without also talking about time. That's right. It's impossible, actually, because without it, they're not the life, so they're not really spaces. And that's the thing about the breathing. When you create the sound, it's kind of like this cosmic microwave background, which I have in my Zoom where we just recording this. That's kind of like a, a one way of looking at the space, but you cannot really know the space if you don't actually activate it. So the breathing is an activator of those blueprints, which is the musical score or the cosmic microwave background. And the activation, the breathing or whatever you want to, the movement of the phrases in, in, in spiritus. That is actually where you really get a sense of the space because if you just hear the flat representation, it gives you a, a color or something like a, a flash, but you cannot really uh, experience it as space until we have that brilliant flutist who can fly through the space because their ears are so good and they control the instrument. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I feel I feel very satisfied. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. And I guess you can't think without breathing. And you can't breathe without thinking on a sort of subconscious level. That's right. It's connected. But also, this is why the piece, I wanted to think about the materiality also of breathing. Because sometimes it takes on this transcendental thing 
uh, hue, I could say, but the instruments, the musical instruments, they remind us of this materiality of breathing that is that which allows for this music. So we breathe polluted air. I guess that might be a summary sentence. We breathe within spaces that allow certain breath and others, other breath not, or that push breath in certain ways. You might have anxiety or stress or joy or whatever. So one cannot separate it from time, like you said, because otherwise you don't have space. You just have the blueprint. It's very interesting that me and Laura talked about magic because you're not just making those sounds and then you have the pitches that are showing you a space, but it's like the stuff that you barely hear because you cannot put it in pitch categories. That really makes the space. So that's really where I'm interested in. It's not the pitches or the intervals, but that which you can barely hear because it's something like outside of the categories that you can name or write down. And that's exactly right what I described actually as the process of what Laura was doing as a performer. She is doing something that I didn't write down, but that is what is the music actually. So how can we hear a space and listen to that which is not written down or write down a book? or calculable, measurable, in that sense. To me, that feels so important with the like aspects of breathing and space and aliveness. I always feel like we don't have enough tools to actually measure things, and yet we insist on measuring everything with those tools that aren't actually receptive to or don't have the ability to be responsible for other aspects of life or other types of aliveness or space. And I just feel like it's so magical in a piece like this. It's just open to possibility rather than prescribing what the possibilities have to become. Yeah, the piece, even though it's written in normative notation, it plays with the cracks between that, not as cracks, but that is the main thing. And Laura, in her performance, was recognizing that. So that's why that's the way this piece has to be interpreted. This is You'll See Me Return to the City of Fury by me, DMR. This was for BIPA, which is a new music festival in Valencia, Spain. Really, really nice people, really, really cool people. A lot of people that I met there I still talk to and that was super great. And it was written for Eric Drescher. So I had two aims with this piece. One, it was, let's do an electroacoustic piece. Let's learn Ableton. And the other thing is the is the physicality of the instrument. Is the fact that it just, you glaze with the, like the head joint, the physicality of the head joint. And so that was like the nerdy kind of approach that I had. The other part is just, I wrote this piece two years after I graduated from the conservatory. And... Honestly, where I was, I was a little bit aimless because uh, I was working as a barista. Uh, I would just write for friends or for festivals that I would go to. Boston was such a way for me as a city. It was a very difficult relationship to manage. So I would turn a, a lot back to my 
my roots. When I was in the conservatory, I would stop whatever I was working in the conservatory and music become more research and anything that I was doing for fun, it was just this divide between me listening to reggaeton, me listening to rock in Espanol, me listening to Spanish pop or whatever. And then it was like the Diana, the conservatory, like there was this huge divide. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Because I clearly not going back to listen to Grisset for the 100 million time. This became my research. What if I really aim to connect with the, my real tradition? My real tradition is eh, Los Fabulosos Cadillacs, So Estéreo, Aterciopelados, Early Shakira, like the first album. Like every millennial Colombian knows that album by heart. Back in the day, Shakira was like, Alanis Morissette. So I'm like, okay, let me turn to this. And I've been obsessed with the version of En la Ciudad de la Furia by Soda Stereo, and they have an unplugged version. And again, I was thinking about electronics and the amount of guitar pedals that, that like, at least the intro, it was just quite wild. I'm like, this doesn't sound like a guitar, it's very ethereal. There's a lot of echo, what is going on? And I'm just, you know what? I'm just gonna experiment with this. That was the source of the rest of the piece happening. That's so beautiful. I like that trying to bring comfort music to the place that is uncomfortable for you. Yeah, I mean, it's how I see the last 15 years in contemporary classical music is that turn. Like everyone who's been so entrenched to learn classical traditions from the Western European canon, if you are not part of it, like very niche and culturally, like if you don't come from Europe, you don't have the same ties. Those ties feel learned and artificial. And there is nothing wrong with that. Like everyone has their own different process. But for me, it was because I didn't learn much about Mozart until I was 18, 19. So it was a learned taste. It was an acquired taste. It wasn't not my first go-to, which is very different with Soda Stereo. And when I moved to Miami, the environment is very different from Boston. Being in Boston felt that I was um, betraying my former self. Or like, it was just, I got to a point like all my training has been, or all my education, including my high school and my uh, elementary school, is being about absorbing European values instead of, wait, what happened with with the people who were colonized. Why, why am I putting so stereo or Rihanna? Because Rihanna was really important in that period too. Below Boulez. And I'm listening more to Rihanna than to Boulez. There is a dissonance and why I'm not. And just discovering, trying to make a bridge between that innate separation that I did. And I think this is why like this piece is so like very important for me. Because it's like the beginning of this my, my most current style. Introducing electronics, introducing my connection with rock and espanol, and putting it together with the flute. I just that's so special about this piece. I feel like this is the, the turning point for me. Okay, so speaking of the glissando flute itself, did you have any sort of like physical practice or embodied practice like with relating to the glissando movements while you were writing the piece? It's funny because the way that I would think about it, I mean, I have a trumpet mouthpiece, but I, I watch a lot of videos of the, the flute, glissando flute, and I'm like, okay, if it goes up, the pitch goes down. And if it goes in, it means that the pitch is getting higher. So I'm a, I'm a former trumpet player. So I would do like the breath exercises while moving, and it made sense 
Of course, it's not the same thing, but because it's a weird instrument, I kind of related to that. When the movement came in, I was just thinking about gestures. If I move fast up and, up and down, what if I, it's slower? What if uh, the time frame is less or more? In that regard, those gestures also align with f musical phrasing. And then the rest was just filling up the, the gaps, like the little fluty things, like the fingerings. But that was like the, 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 the first thing I thought when tackling writing for the glissando flute. Yeah, yeah I think it's it like the that. only time that I thought about it like that. Because I don't think I have it. I have thought about it since. And that, that that's like why it's so special, the glissando flute, because it allows to, to think outside what would you normally do with a, with a flute with a regular head joint. I mean, I wish there was more information out there about the head joint. Because yeah. sometimes, I mean, I didn't know you can go a perfect fourth. I'm making my, my limit. I limit the piece to minor third. It's honestly, probably safer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay. I, be, I mean, I do feel like the pitches that I use are like the actual melody of the song. So a stereo song. And it was just how can I make this not sound like the song, but also kind of recall that too. We should play like a little clip of the song. I mean, for me, it's one of the most sexy songs. Totally. Do you think that the flute piece is sexy? I think it's... I'm an angsty composer. I feel that I have a lot of anger, which I don't, I don't see it as a bad thing necessarily. It's just, uh, I feel that there is something about my music that is either angry or nostalgic or both. It's part of my mental state. I mean, I've been... Half of my life has been in the U.S. and half of my life has been in Colombia. So I don't feel that I'm Colombian enough and I will never be American. Not because, I mean, I, I love I love the U.S. has given me so much. I have accomplished things that I never thought I would. And so I'm, I'm really grateful. And all the people that I have met in the U.S. have made such a change in my life. But it's always, I've been in that limbo forever. So it's like, I always want to come back home. But the feeling of home, I, I don't, I, I haven't found it again yet since I left Colombia. And I think that's part of me that is very angsty. And also you start to learn how the system sees you and you, like you didn't know, like you were so naive that you really thought that just working hard, you would get far. And... That, that rings true for a lot of people. But I mean, I, I think that's part of my anger. And my graduation from the conservatory was like that radical. Like I felt like the community that I have built in the conservatory was gone because my jobs at the time, like it was either being a hostess at a restaurant or being a barista wouldn't align with the whole classical scene in, in, in Boston. Even if I try, like, and don't get me wrong, uh, I really form really nice bonds with people, but usually it's because we hate the system uh, <laughs> kind of situation. So that's part of what I think my music is this mix of nostalgia, always looking back to Colombia and also angst. We've been asking everyone like, you know, where they were when they wrote it or if they have any distinct memories of their geographical location when they wrote it. You made it pretty clear that there's a lot of relationality to Boston, etc. But you were in Boston when you wrote it? And you were in Spain when it 
was premiered. Is that right? It... Yes, 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 yes. It was very strange because I feel like it was like part of me was like very radical uh, in the approach. I mean, radical for me. I'm not saying there's a radical life changing. It, no, but for me it was. And it was actually funny to go for the first time to Spain, which is the, my main colonizer mm -hmm. <laughs> country. Mm -hmm. And that was another, like, it was like this weird sensation of home with the colonized uh, culture and also aversion. It was weird. Everything made sense, though. Like, it's making a statement in a European soul about the music I want to do. That's so fucking intense. Laura, tell me about your relationship to You'll See Me Return to the City of Fury. I listened to it on SoundCloud, I think. Or maybe Scorefall. It's, it's on a handful of platforms, Eric's beautiful performance of it. I think I listened to it like many times <laughs> in one evening. I think it was like I hit the end and then I was like, no, no. And then I would just like listen to it again. And then I think the next morning I wrote to DMR and I was like, I listened to your piece like 25 times last night and uh, would you be okay if I played it? Because <laughs> um, it just like got into my brain. I don't know. It's an amazing piece. Eric's performance from Vipa is beautiful. And then in learning it, I actually started learning it without the glissando head joint because I was shopping around for one for a while. And the glissando flute, how it works is it's a head joint that Robert Dick has invented. And it's really amazing. There's kind of like a cutout in the head joint and then there's a slat under the cutout and a wall on the back of that slat and the the embouchure hole itself is kind of attached to the slat and the hole so you kind of move back and forth and you're really changing the length of the head joint tube so you're shifting the length of the overall instrument which gives you the ability to kind of move up and down about a fourth or fifth depending on uh, how else you amplify that change and I have kind of a my flute itself is like a little strange and so that I couldn't find and I kept looking for a head joint fit into my specific instrument which was too small so I, I yeah i had been practicing dmr's piece without any of the head joint stuff and then i got a, a call from the flute center here in new york and they had like a weird old flute from the early 1920s that has the same fingering system as my flute which has a kind of reversed old fingering system and they're like you know do you want this it's like 500 bucks and so i bought this old flute and magically the glissando head joint fit in this flute so it was just this like perfect thing that happened tendrils of like flute fate came in and were like here's the things that you need to, <laughs> to actually play this correctly i do believe like there is some type of magic when serendipitous things happen yes and, like, things start lining up like and it's just small things yeah no it's so true and to like attune yourself to be able to listen to those small things and like oh wow something really magical just happened I feel like that's really important for cultivating more <laughs> I am Joan Arnau Pamias and I wrote Production Schmittel. <laughs> so this piece, Production Schmittel, um, it's a, originally, it was a commission by this ensemble in Spain and they asked me to write a piece for flute, harp, accordion, and electronics. And the truth is that and Laura, you, you may kill me for what I'm about to say now, you know, but the truth is that there isn't much late 20th century music for flute that was like life-changing for me. And I felt like, but I like this instrument, you know, I like, 
the way that you produce the sound, you know, like the like the, the actual physicality of it, you know. So I thought I should do something that explores the flute in ways that that it goes really in depth with all the possibilities. And I didn't want it to be like beautiful in this sort of cliche way. I wanted it to be a rough and kind of brutal piece you know, for an instrument that usually it's not heard this way. Mm -hmm. To accomplish that, I had to decouple all the different parameters of the sound production to be able to achieve these results. Yeah, I'd really agree that mm -hmm. it could not absolutely be written in traditional notation. Could you describe the different parameters that you decoupled? Yes, of course. There's like the phonemes, the actual um, phonemes that you produce with your mouth. There's the amount of air, the speed of air. There's like the rotation of the instrument. There's the, the fingerings, obviously. The pressure of like the muscles around the mouth. So it's very specific. And when I wrote the piece, I actually got myself a flute and, and I just did it. I just picked it up and I'm okay, I want this, you know, how, and that's how, it, that's what I'm doing. I'm like putting the mouth like this. I'm putting, you know, like this is the fingering. This is the air. I'm going to write it down. You were totally successful in writing a piece that sounds kind of brutal too. It's beautiful in its own way, but it sounds very, it sounds like it might be brutal to play too. What does it feel like to play? I think the the brutal aspect of playing it certainly comes in learning it. Once it's learned and it feels kind of like physically ingrained, it is very kind on the body. Especially when we were working on it, I learned a lot about the phrasing, I guess, that you're creating in these gestures. And that just made it more idiomatic too, to be like, oh, there's this one again. There's, there's this one, but this is happening. There's a time shift, but we've brought this back. It sounds like for... Both of you, the piece was kind of an intellectual puzzle and a physical, like, coordination puzzle. Yeah. Some of these things, when you put them in the same place as one another, the effect that you'll have is not, oh, there are two things in the same place as one another, but you'll get a result that is exterior to those two things because yeah. of how they combine, or you'll get something that kind of cancels itself out almost. Correct, correct. I mean, I think that this is the, the right approach to understand this, this music. I was not so interested in telling you this is the sound that I want. It's more like this is the situation, you know, and you have to do these two things. And when you do these two things, a third thing happens. And ultimately, I think that it has to do with the fact that especially at that time, you know, this was like written in 2014. I was very interested in managing very unpredictable materials. I got tired of writing music that I knew always how it would sound under all circumstances. I think that this is the core of experimentalism. Totally. Yeah. It makes music way more fun. When you go on stage and you're like, oh, many things could happen <laughs> in the next hour and a half. And uh, we'll see. We'll all find out together. Yeah, gotta get friendly with the unknown. Yeah. I think that you have to be somewhat brave. I mean, I know plenty of excellent musicians who don't feel comfortable in that position, you know, and that's why when Laura sent me the email, you know, and was like, hey, you know, I want to feature this in my album. I'm like, awesome. I already heard your performance when you did it in New York. And I was like entirely confident that you would do an excellent job and that it would be great. With your help, I will say, with, with his help. <laughs> and I truly mean that. It's, it's truly an honor that you did it. Well, thank you. I mean, seriously, it's, it's a really foundational piece in how I, since learning it, have continued to approach the instrument, which is like the most exciting thing to have a relationship like that with a piece. One of the things about the piece that's really cool too, even as a solo piece, 
or solo with electronics is because from looking at it, you know, you're not getting an immediate sense oftentimes of pitch other than the vocal pitches that are, are notated on a traditional staff. But the multiphonics that come out or the pitches that come out of the fingering staff, it's kind of a tablature notation. I wouldn't say it's, it's tonal, it's certainly not tonal, but to me it feels very tonal. Right. There's, there certainly are moments where tonality is pretty evident, like the section with the arpeggios, you know, with like the, yeah. the C major, the high pitch and all of that. When I was working on the multiphonics, I thought of organizing them in ways that the pitches that would come out would create these pitch areas where generally you're in that set, in that area in terms of pitch, you know, and then you move to another area and it slightly changes, right? Mm -hmm. So that it wouldn't feel all the time that it's just purely chaotic, you know? Now that I'm thinking about it, it's, it's a hard piece to compose and it's a hard piece to play. We like hard. <laughs> yeah, we like hard. <laughs> Hard's fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, but you have to like it, otherwise it's just... You know, people will get like, what the hell? You know, what is this? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's just so damn worth it, this piece. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I agree. Where were you when you wrote this piece geographically? And do you think that that had an influence on how you wrote or what you wrote? I was, I remember very well. I was in my apartment in Chicago, in Rogers Park. I remember I had this white desk. <laughs> and that's what I were. I wrote the piece. I was doing my doctorate at the time at Northwestern. I was composing this kind of music and, and working with also with performers in Chicago who were interested in this kind of work. But then the first time that the piece was performed, since it was commissioned by this ensemble in Spain, it was in, a, it was in Spain. It was in Galicia, which is in the Northwest. And I finished like a few of the, I finished like some notational aspects also in Galicia, in Spain. So yeah, I would say like 90% in Chicago and 10% and in, in, in Galicia. Could you tell us a little bit about, there's a lot of different materials in the piece. There's obviously a flute that is set up normally, um, a flute that doesn't have a head joint, a flute that is only a head joint. There's a beer bottle, there's tinfoil, there's none of these things, but the piece still happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the piece is, uh, it's an allegory, you know, of how most people on earth endure capitalism, which is this system where you wake up in the morning and you have certain things you have to do. The main one, you have to sell your labor to survive, essentially. And then like, you know, repeat, go to sleep and repeat, right? And that's how it works, you know, and especially in the U.S., you know, obviously it's a global system, but it, when I uh, was living in the U.S., it became so clear. I mean, like Americans work a lot work a lot. I'm not sure that it's because they are raised this way or so on. You know, it's, I think that it just has to do with the fact that you have to work a lot and make money to be able to survive, period, you know, because of the lack of social services and so on and so forth. So I wanted to create this piece where you have all of these instructions that you are following, and yet it's never entirely clear where you're going with it. <laughs> we're just doing it because you've been told that you have to do it right but at the end something happens and i call like the last section like the epilogue everything stops you drop the flute and then this sounds that you were producing with the flute earlier now you're making them with tinfoil and you're making them with a bottle and with your own voice so in a sense these materials what they want to suggest is that you have transcended the logic of the system you are outside of it. And, and when we mixed it, we did that too. We brought 
all of this sounds very close, extremely dry, you know, like you hear them right here and the stereo, you know, and the panning and everything, it's right there, right? So, so a little bit like that was the point. Ultimately, yes, ultimately the flutist has moved beyond. My favorite part of the piece is like the very, very end. It's like the moment when you assemble the instrument back and then you're about to perform. And in a sense, like that moment, I think that it's, it's probably the best I've done musically ever. Like, you know, really, I really believe that. That's a really high stakes cool. thing to say. I'm really yeah, excited about that. Me too. Yeah. Because what it is, is, is that you are about to start something and you are living it up for the audience's imagination, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is up to all of us to know what the future is going to be. This has been Talk Editions Podcast, episode 22, featuring Laura Cox and the composers of Field Anatomies, David Bird, Bethany Young, Jesse Cox, DMR, and Joan Arnau-Pamies. This episode was produced and edited by me, Charlotte Mundy. If you want a future with more Talk Editions podcast in it, please share the podcast with someone, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and a review would be awesome. Our most recent review comes from Captain Haddock, who writes, This concise podcast features sparkling conversation about the artist's journey and artistic process. Listen whether or not you think this music is for you. The impact is much broader than that. Thanks, Captain Haddock. So go listen to Field Anatomies. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 